0: Welcome to the Nourishment Mindset Podcast, your guide to good food, good health, and a good life. And now, here's your host, Nutrition Network Advisor, and author of The Nourishment Mindset. Happy Dixie Transformation U. Tuesday, y'all. Welcome to or back to the Nourishment Mindset Podcast, where we are on a metabolic mission to achieve vitality and reverse chronic lifestyle conditions through real whole foods, straight talk, and the pleasures of the table. I want to first start with a thank you to the people that continue to support me with their um, book purchases, subscribing to favorfat.substack.com, following me, nourishment mindset on Instagram and YouTube. Appreciate you very much. Please share with a friend, perhaps someone who would like to improve his or her metabolic health, refine that vitality through the real whole foods basis, the fundamental aspect of the nourishment mindset. Pretty excited for today's episode. Not gonna lie. I have been sitting on this for (laughs) Months, I think. Many months. Um, This episode is called La Cantine Scolaire. So if you've been listening a while, you know that I have a grand amour, a great love for all things French. My family and I spend time there every year. We have a fractional share in a home in a village near Avignon in Provence. And for me, the just ability to, to to live in France and enjoy the culture, especially the food and nourishment culture is, it's a dream come true. And it has taught me so much. It is actually um, a foundation for the whole idea of the nourishment mindset, um, as well as my 20 years that I spent in the wine industry. Um, so today's Episode is actually our third show about nourishing children. Okay, so this is episode number 55. The third episode was called Kid Food. My 27th episode was called Let's Cook, and I did that with my son, Fletcher. So today's episode number 55, La Cantine Scolaire, as I said, was inspired by the last time I was in France this past summer. So what happened is I we got to our home and I was going through the mail and I found this newsletter, really almost more of like a newspaper, a quarterly newspaper from our Marie or the mayor's office uh, in the village of Chateauneuf-du-Pape. Um, and in this monthly newspaper was an article, and to see the article, you'll have to float over to favorfat.substack.com, but it was just, it was a tiny little article, Um, and you'll see it here in the YouTube video if you're watching on YouTube, but it was about the three female chefs at the local elementary school, and how they were really proud to be offering locally sourced organically farmed food for this elementary school. Their names are chefs Betty, Karine, and Hakima. Um, And they are striving in their words, c'était en français, but uh, translated, striving for balanced meals, as I said, locally sourced and organic. So here you have a country where the elementary school has not one, but three chefs. Put this in stark contrast to our public school system in the U.S. where there are no chefs. And basically it's big trucks from Cisco that back their asses up in, dump out a bunch of processed food and then it's heated and served to our kids. So that is something that has always driven me bonkers. It's why I've always made Fletcher's um, lunch. i I I'm just, frankly, the word is disgust for the local school menus. Um, Another inspiration for this episode, I'll say, and I'll be reading a few excerpts from this. If you're looking on YouTube, the book is called Pandora's Lunchbox. So I've been holding on to this for a while. I wanted to pull it all together for you. And I'm really excited to do that in this episode. So the French see their gastronomy, this is their culture of eating, as a critical aspect of their culture, their history. It's so important for both health and human connection and according to the French, and according to this little article about the three chefs at the local elementary school, it's it's a gastronomy and a culture that should be shared through the generations. So reading this little article, just you know, again, I don't need to fall in love with France again, but it just it solidified what I think they are doing well uh, in in grand contrast to what we are not doing well. Um, our school food are, are basically um, to, to not hold back ultra processed garbage, it's an afterthought. That's what we're feeding our children. So, I have a link in the substack for this episode to the villages menu, which features three courses daily, tons of varieté, variety, variety, this is in stark contrast to the pathetic rotation of pizza, hot dogs, prepackaged peanut butter and jelly, and even pancakes. So I'm just going to give you, and again, this is linked in the Substack. So hop on over to favorfat.substack.com. You'll see the menu. Um, so I'm just looking at an example from. This is actually on my birthday uh, a couple of years ago, uh, November fourteenth, twenty twenty-two. Lundi, Monday. So the first course was a salade de maïs-ton. This is a tuna and corn salad. Then pilon de poulet. These are chicken drumsticks. Eric vert persillé. So we have a, a green bean puree and then crème dessert. So I'm not sure which type of crème dessert, but this is, um, wow, right? So we start with a salad. We have chicken with green beans and then we have a crème dessert. The next day, Maldi, Tuesday, we have a green salad. Then we have a, what looks like to be almost like a crepe made with cheese and spinach. Then there is um, lentils in a sauce. They don't say which sauce. And then for the third course, we have cheese in, in some sort of fruit compote. On Thursday, Jeudi, now it's worth noting, I believe the school on Wednesdays does a half day. So they're not serving lunch. So that's why it goes from Mardi, Tuesday to Jeudi, Thursday. They are beginning with a tabbouleh. Then they're doing a chicken filet in a sauce. They don't say what kind. Then there's a broccoli gratin. And then for dessert, there is a gâteau au chocolat, a chocolate cake, wow. On Friday that week, they were serving a vegetable soup, followed by veal and a cream sauce with pasta, and then the dessert was fruit. Sounds pretty damn good to me. Now, we're gonna contrast that with the menu of my local school system that's coming up here starting this Monday, February, end of February. We've got nachos with chili and cheese, chicken nuggets, PB and J with a cheese stuck stick rather, and a chicken popcorn popper. There is also a selection of fruits. supposedly there's a selection of vegetables that's not so bad uh with the ability to have the uh, fruits and vegetables. So the next day we have a hamburger, a cheeseburger, more PB and J, uh, mandarin, orange, chicken, and rice. Now, That's interesting, right? That doesn't sound so bad, the mandarin, orange, chicken, and rice. Here's the issue. Not made by chefs. As I said, truck backs up, dumps the stuff off. So we know what's in there. Seed oils, preservatives. We have no idea how long this meal has been preserved uh, since cooking. Uh, So I move on. The Wednesday, because our kids are in school all day on Wednesdays normally. Uh, We got corn dogs, barbecue pork, more pb and J um the next day there's a spicy chicken salad more pb and j a mixed berry cup uh and then friday because you know it's friday and we're americans we got pizza and corn dogs so stark contrast um i don't know about y'all but i'm dining at the canteen scolaire if i have that option (laughs) so the thing that um I witness firsthand when I'm there is the behavior of the kids. In France, you don't see any rabid, wild animal children. They're having fun, but they are not out of control. Why is this? Okay, so part of this is what the French call le cadre. A cadre is a framework of acceptable behavior. It's also partly due to well-nourished kids. These kids are not hangry. They are eating Petit-dejeuner, breakfast at 8 a.m. They're having this school lunch if they're in school on a given day. They're having what they call a goutte, an afternoon snack. And then they're having a well-balanced and usually smaller dinner because dinner is a, a lesser meal than lunch in France. So the hanger, the hyperactivity, concentration problems, all of these things are linked to malnourishment that comes from consuming ultra-processed foods. And if you can believe it, and it pains me to even say this out loud, 70%, if you wanna be exact, 68% of the food that our children consume in America is ultra-processed. And I'm not even gonna call it food, I'm gonna call it garbage, U-P-G, ultra-processed garbage, 70%. So this is where the book that I mentioned, Pandora's Lunchbox, comes in. The author's name is Melanie Warner, and she writes about how processed food took over the American meal. I do recommend this book. It's a wee bit depressing, but it's one of those things you read and then you can't unsee. You owe it to yourself. So... Ms. Warner started with an experiment of how long ultra-processed food would last. And in some cases she found after six years of storing food well beyond its expiration date that it had not changed. So this inspired her book. In the book, she starts with cereal, the all-American breakfast, right? This is a relatively new invention, so let's get some fun historical facts in about cereal. Cereal was invented by a Dr. Kellogg, probably rings some bells, Kellogg's cornflakes. He ran a sanatorium and was a Seventh-day Adventist, opposed to both meat as well as sex and masturbation. His cornflakes were born as a measure to prevent certain activities, I'll let you draw the line, um, and became one of the biggest marketing scams of all time. Breakfast is the most important meal of the day and you need to load up on grains, starchy foods, etc., cetera, uh, to supposedly fuel your active day or perhaps render you, um, let's just say, without energy. So if you think about what cereal is, and let's be totally real. Usually these are glyphosated grains, that's my term, grains grown with glyphosate, Monsanto slash Bayer's wonderful product that you know kills off ecosystems. Then they're mixed with industrial seed oils and preservatives and dyes and things like Fruit Loops. And then we, of course, call it the most important meal of the day. And it is that. It is the most important meal of the day if you are a cereal producer or a big food company. And then they claim that it's nutritious because they spray it with synthetic vitamins. This is not real food, y'all. This is garbage, it's extruded by heavy machinery dried at something like five to 600 degrees. So if there were any nutrients in there, guess what, they're long gone. And it's made to basically be indestructible. So if you're thinking about that cereal for breakfast, please, please remember that we have been eating breakfast for millennia and a perfect breakfast happens to come from beautiful chickens, eggs, y'all eat eggs. Or if you're not hungry, Don't eat or eat some sort of real food, but please, please reconsider cereal. It's highly, highly profitable to food manufacturers, and it is highly, highly dangerous to your health. So the book Pandora's Lunchbox details other horrors in the food industry, such as dough conditioners. Do you know what a dough conditioner is? I'm going to walk on over to page 102 and tell you what dough conditioners are. So this is a chapter where she's talking about Subway. Remember, eat fresh. Okay. In order to get dough to survive all the puffing and thrashing that happens inside the bread machines, dough conditioners are needed. Subway's bread contains five of them. Now, please excuse my pronunciation. I I don't have a PhD in chemistry. Yet. Sodium steroid. La latillate. La, I always say if you can't pronounce it, don't freaking eat it. Uh, bad start for me here. Monoglycerides. Diglycerides, absorbic acid, diacetol tartaric ester of monoglyceride, known as datum. Without these ingredients, Subway's dough would break down, losing its elasticity and sticking in gluey clumps to the machines. These additives, which are used in most fast food and supermarket varieties as well, infuse bread with a quality most traditional bakers have probably never thought to consider what baking scientists refer to as dough machinability. Calling dough conditioners chemicals isn't exactly accurate because they start with a fat, such as, any guesses? Soybean oil? Oh, it's the worst of the worst. Ah, It might be beef tallow or palm oil, but y'all know it's gonna be soybean oil because it's cheap. After that, you need a heavy duty floodlight to guide your way down the industrial rabbit hole. Here's a quick glimpse. To create sodium steroil lactolate, lactolate, the fat is first sheared into its component fatty acids in a process known as thermal cracking, something commonly employed in petroleum refining. The resulting stearic acid or palmitic acid is then combined with heat, lactic acid, and sodium. That gives you the sodium steroil part. To get Lactylate, cornstarch, is treated with enzymes to yield dextrose, read sugar, which is then fermented to produce lactic acid. Monoglycerides and diglycerides come from applying an alcohol and an acid to glycerin, a derivative of soybean or palm oil. Further processing of these compounds with tartaric acid, a naturally occurring chemical found in wine through, though derived synthetically rather, yields datum. Sodium, lactylate and mono and diglycerides are not exclusive to bread. Well, of course not. They're found in lots of other foods and categories ranging from frozen meals and desserts to bread and meat products, pancake mixes, kids' lunches, and Starbucks apple fritters and pound cake. Despite the chain's emphasis on natural ingredients. <laughs> One of Subway's other bread ingredients, okay this is a mouthful, azodicarbonamide is used in the chain's white and sourdough breads to help evenly distribute the air pulled in from the mixing. This gives the loaves the appearance of those neatly woven pieces of fabric with each tiny air pocket more or less the same size, a work of perfection that bakers call a fine crumb structure. A yellowish-orange powder, Azo dicarbonamide is produced from hydrazine, which comes from a reaction of the chemicals sodium, hippoplorite, and ammonia. Its biggest uses are not in other areas of the supermarket, but in the production of rubber and plastics. Azo has probably been used to make the soles of your shoes and the floor mats you walk on at the gym. It's not something anyone would ever think to eat. On a summer morning in 2001, a truck carrying it overturned on Chicago's busy Dan Ryan Expressway, prompting city fire officials to issue the highest hazardous materials alert and evacuate everyone living up to a half mile downwind. People on the scene, many of whom abandoned their cars amid the massive pileup complained of burning eyes and skin irritation. Making mass-produced bread without flammable chemicals and highly engineered fat derivatives is possible. It's just harder and more expensive. Isn't that delicious? I hope y'all are hungry to eat fresh at Subway. Right. Warner also unveils the FDA's grass BS. This reminds me of a quote from a long forgotten movie, man, I wish I could remember it, but the guy goes, your ass is grass and I'm the lawnmower. (laughs) So generally recognized as safe is what grass stands for. Again, this is the FDA, very trustworthy organization. They allow 5,000 plus additives in our food system. And something you should know is that generally recognized as safe means that the food company can or cannot study it and just state that it's safe and put it in the food. And there is no oversight. Isn't that delicious? So let's learn a little bit more. Grasping how the FDA could allow companies simply to wave a magic wand and give their own ingredients a green light requires going back to the 1958 food additive law. In passing it, Congress expected that all new substances would go through a rigorous FDA review process before being launched in the supermarket. Congress wasn't sure how many food additives There would be, but naively figured the total might reach a 1,000 or so, and as a sort of side rule, the law established another program, here it comes, generally recognized as safe, your ass is grass and I'm the lawnmower, for substances that everyone and their dog knew to be safe, things like spices, salt, vinegar, yeast. It was an escape hatch for the relatively small number of common sense things that didn't need an arduous approval process. And thanks to the compromise-ridden, sausage-making nature of government legislation, it was made voluntary. Don't you love her writing style? Companies didn't have to let the FDA know about their grass ingredients if they chose not to, though Congress expected most of them would anyway. (laughs) Right, wink, wink, nod, nod. Ingredient companies quickly realized that getting something declared grass, remember, your ass is grass, I'm the lawnmower by the FDA was infinitely easier than buying for approval through what was formally and confusingly called the food additive process. Although it was never intended to the torrent of new ingredients gradually shifted toward grass. Gosh, that's amazing. You give them a way to just shove it through and wow, that's weird. They all go in that direction. Then in 1997, a change in the rules made getting something on the grass list even easier. Turning the stringent food additive process into a vestigial organ of the regulatory system. The FDA said that instead of grass petitions, filing process where the agency scientists had to look at safety data and make a decision, there were now grass notifications, a system by which the company would assess the safety of its own ingredients. Often by assembling a panel of experts, gosh, deja vu. Anyone thinking about any other experts with FDA? (laughs) I read on. The company would then notify the FDA of its decision unless, of course, it decided not to. The system, remember, is still voluntary. The grass process became so attractive to ingredient companies that everyone pretty much just stopped using the petition process. Since 2000, there have been formal FDA food additive petitions for, guess how many? Four new substances. Let's just hang out with that for a moment. See, people in the past Not that I hold a grudge, but I do, I'm gonna be honest. Have asked me why I do not trust the FDA. Well, it's because of books like this and Marion Nestle's book. I just, I know a little bit too much about how they operate. Um, So let's move on from that. Warner gives another really chilling example of someone, just an American, eating food on a given day, okay? Someone consuming a Nutri-Grain bar in the morning, a Subway Chipotle chicken and cheese sandwich for lunch and a DiGiorno pepperoni pizza, for instance, will have ingested a total of 68 different non-food additives, not including those synthetic vitamins and minerals, that until recently no human being ate. Such amalgamations can't be easily tested, cause they're not. Animal studies are rarely done for additives. Testing chemicals together quickly becomes a what if scenario with an infinite number of possible outcomes. Wow, that's nice. This is what we're eating, y'all. Any questions as to why I'm such a uh, a hoe for real Whole Foods? <laughs> so now it's time to shit on seed oils. I already talked about the soybean oils. Um, in the cereals etc but I'm going to flip on over to page 130 of Pandora's Lunchbox and just tell you another little story and then we're going to wrap it up on this book okay so author Warner went to ADM's Decatur factory where they make soybean oil I would love to do this And unsurprisingly, they don't allow tours of how the sausage slash soybean oil is made. Uh, So she states, the lengthy, intricate process illustrates why soybean oil is not a simple ingredient, as Frito-Lays calls it on the Tostitos packages, nor is it 100% natural, as Wesson refers to it, but a complex, highly tech project, high-tech project, rather. Soybeans are hard, sturdy pebbles, not easily transformed into flowing vats of liquid. Unlike olives, which ooze oil and cream, which if left alone separates easily from milk, quite a lot has to be done to pry out oil from soybeans, making it suitable, suitable for processed foods. In fact, some 90 years after its introduction, we're still searching for new technologies for what has been a troublesome oil from the beginning. So true. Whole soybeans are dispatched into the Decatur plant. So again, this is food processor ADM. From a row of nearby grain silos fed by the daily arrival of rail cars. Each soybean is dried, de cracked, flattened into flakes, and then sent for de-oiling. For the past five decades, this has been done with a chemical solvent requiring soil bean oil factories to be explosion proof. Its main component is hexane, which comes from the same fraction of crude oil used to make gasoline. Hexane is classified by the OSHA Occupational Safety and Health Administration as a neurotoxin. After just 10 to 15 minutes of exposure, vertigo, headaches, nausea, eye, and upper respiratory tract infections can develop. Mmm, Yummy. Who wants a soybean oil infused meal? After you leach the oil out, hexane is separated from the mixture by vaporization in a vacuum. It's then cooled, condensed back into liquid and reused. ADM and other soybean processors say any traces of hexane remaining in the oil or in the solids are just that. Just just traces, look over here. Our biggest exposure to hexane is likely not coming from food, but from the gasoline fumes we breathe at gas stations. Since motor fuel contains small amounts of the chemical, but how much we're exposed to in our food is hard to say exactly. The FDA, of course, doesn't set a maximum residue level or require companies to do any testing. Why would they? Once pried from the bean soybean oil is the color of weak coffee, brown. Nowhere near ready for frying nuggets or drizzling onto that healthy salad. If you tasted it at this juncture, it would be a bit like eating grass, said Duncan Guy, a technical rep for bunge. To fix this, the oil is piped into an adjacent facility at ADM's complex, where it's treated with two other chemicals, sodium hydroxide and phosphoric acid. To remove any lingering soy solids, as well as some of the color pesticides, Mmm and other various impurities. Then it's bleached using a clay filter and treated with hydrochloric acid, the stuff I saw sitting in the rail tankers, says Warner. This process removes all color pigments, including red-hued compound beta-carotene, the substance our bodies convert to vitamin A. If not for the bleaching, soybean oil would be healthier, but also a bright red color. The next step, Deodorizing, which happens in a vacuum at 500 degrees Fahrenheit, saps the oil of every trace of color and flavor and also of its vitamin E and phytosterols, substances thought to block the absorption of cholesterol. Like lecithin, another thing y'all need to avoid, a gummy substance removed from soybean oil before bleaching, these healthy compounds are marketed separately, which is more financially advantageous than adding them back to the oil. ADM sells 12 different vitamin E products, 16 lecithins, and a brand of plant sterols called Cardio A that you can find in yogurts. Although they don't use hexane, natural and organic vegetable oils also go through similar bleaching and deodorization steps. Vitamin E is a potent natural antioxidant, usually replaced with a preservative TBHQ, or a slightly more natural one like citric acid which by the way she doesn't go into this citric acid sounds like i'm squeezing a lemon into something it ain't it's made from mold y'all <laughs> more natural gross please she she's she kind of dropped the ball on that one but anyway let's go back into it if the oil is destined for deep fryers it will have the silicon based chemical all right wait for it dimethyl poly siloxane added to keep the oil from getting frothy after countless rounds of frying. So again, those lovely McDonald's or wherever French fries, it's rancid oil that they use over and over and over, but no worry because there's dimethyl polysiloxane added to keep it from getting frothy. Then at long last, after multiple rounds of heating, chemical treating, centrifuging, filtering, washing washing and vacuuming the soybean oil, clear, tasteless, odorless, nearly nutrient-free, is edible, edible, really, ready to be pumped into 8,000 gallon tanker trucks shipped off to customers across the food industry. Yum dinner is served. Wow. That's amazing. So what are we supposed to do, y'all? Are we supposed to just freak out or give up? This is all about mitigation, folks. Uh, Knowledge is power. It's important to know what we're dealing with. And I will be honest. Last weekend, I was at my favorite restaurant in the world, Capri Fish House, sat on the beach with my glass of Sauvignon Blanc. I had a gator bite. I know that shit's fried in soybean oil. So I'm not sitting here on health coach hill. Sometimes you got to have a gator bite. I'm sure the alligator meat's good. Yes, it does taste like chicken, but it's about mitigation. So we need to know where our food comes from. We need to know what ingredients are in our food. And you'll be just fine if you focus the vast majority of your time and energy on real whole single ingredient foods cooked in your home and then when you go out to a restaurant or if you have that fried gator bite or whatever it is it's okay let's not fret about it let's not make food a religion this is all about as i said mitigation 90% 90% of the time, figure out what works for you. I'm not here to tell you what's going to work best for you and your family. I am here to suggest that you be mindful of what you are consuming and the risk-reward ratio of that. The fact is that when you have real whole single ingredient foods made che-vous, you are nourishing yourself. When you're eating out and you're taking in this junk, you're making a health account withdrawal. And hey. That's okay. You get to choose when and how you make a health account withdrawal, but you should at least be mindful of it. So I'd like to finish up with a related idea because this is ultimately about how we're feeding our kids. That's why I wanted to bring awareness to this, the contrast between la cantine scolaire and the public school in America food menu. There's another book I've read a couple of different times by Dr. Christine Carter. This is called Raising Happiness, 10 Simple Steps for More Joyful Kids and Happier Parents. So in this book, there's plenty with which I agree. There's some I absolutely don't, but I'm gonna say something. Her chapter 10 is 100% correct. Chapter 10 is called Eat Dinner Together. According to Dr. Carter, having dinner together as a family is the last and most important science-based advice I will give you for raising happy kids. That's what she says. The benefits are remarkable. Family dinners lead to greater emotional stability, less likelihood of abuse of drugs and alcohol, better grades, fewer depressive symptoms, and a lesser likelihood of becoming obese or having an eating disorder. She cites a Harvard Graduate School of Education study that looked at acquired language. This is really interesting to me. And they found that just 143 of the 2000 rare words that kids knew came from parents reading to kids. Now I'm not suggesting you don't read to your kids, your young kids, but interestingly, a thousand, more than a thousand of the 2000 rare words came from where? the dinner table it's not only a chance to nourish it's a chance to come together have a conversation share what went well throughout the day and just enjoy the pleasures of the table but how interesting that eating dinner together helps kids acquire better language not just language but of course information examples connection closeness so i urge you to sit down to your next real whole foods meal say a blessing or acknowledge something for which you're grateful and nourish yourself and your family. And remember, it's not about perfection. I'm trying to stress again that knowledge is power. We need to be aware of what we are feeding ourselves, not just physical food, but mentally, what are we consuming in order to adopt a nourishment mindset? But we also don't need to take it into crazy territory. We have to find that balance that works for us. So in closing, please, if you haven't bought the Nourishment Mindset book, please do so. You can get it on Amazon or you can go on over to my website, favoritefat.com and get yourself a signed copy for the same price as Amazon. And I include shipping as well. You can find me on LinkedIn, Instagram, and YouTube. I love it when people suggest topics for a future episode. Right now, these episodes are monthly. So please let me know topics, questions. And if you haven't yet reviewed the pod on your favorite platform, please take a moment to do so. We really appreciate the sharing, the liking, all of the attention that you can bring so that we can continue our metabolic mission of helping people achieve vitality. And reverse chronic lifestyle conditions through real whole foods, straight talk, and the pleasures of the table. Santé, y'all. I hope you have a wonderfully nourished week and month. And I will see you in the next episode. In final words, shout out to my mother-in-law who knitted me this beautiful wrap. Isn't this amazing? Crochet? I'm not sure what it is. I just know that it's a piece of art. So I thought I would wear it on camera. Thank you, Karen Huey. Au revoir.